Hi, Jeremy. Hello, Raphael. <laughs> I'm mixing it up. Hello. Hello. Um, yeah, still in Oslo, are you? Yeah, I'm still living the Scandinavian dream. Yeah, because uh, it, it, the whole world thinks Scandinavia is wonderland because everything's fair and people are respectful and pay a lot of taxes and are happy about it. And, mm-hmm. and so how is the reality? It's raining every day. Um, and food everything's really expensive including food like eating out is really expensive it's like it's a country that's set up for you to raise a family i've noticed and it's like uh which is great for most people uh but i have no is no value to me so how, <laughs> how do you encounter that fact uh just because like the things that you like that you do as a non-family based person like you know go out for a meal or um I guess like just the the public transportation is actually really good. Um, Eating out is really expensive. Like you can't buy alcohol after 6 p.m. Like yesterday I was at the grocery store. You don't even drink. Yeah, but I was going to a party. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You got me. You know what? Actually, anytime anyone goes... Yeah, heroin's really expensive too, right? (laughs) They have a heroin problem. (laughs) So they... No, 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 but, actually, but how is the great. feeling of being there? Like the, it's really the good. It's if it wasn't raining this week, I would be I, I would be really happy. It's it's okay. a really great place. Actually, here's the one thing that I think is frustrating. I, yesterday, I tried to go and buy some office supplies because I'm about to do some, some workshops, and I really wanted like big pads of paper, sharpies, you know, stuff you'd get from like Staples or Office Depot, but they don't actually have like an office supply store of any kind and also they close all their stores really early on the weekends like a no nothing's open on sundays which is nice you know like you can have sunday off but then just to like dig in there they also close stores at like 3 or 4 p.m on saturdays <laughs> and and even you can't buy booze like i said on saturdays after six so you're really like constrained like so if you wake up late you're already behind schedule if you just want to get something done yeah it, it it's funny no i know a lot of uh americans u.s citizens who are jealous of the northern western european political system mm-hmm. but then i also know that they would be very if they really had to live the life of like waiting for 15 years to get a place to live and having crazy neighbors because it's socialized housing <laughs> and, and uh, uh, the reality of it is and really living it is different than uh, just well, being like, yeah yeah i mean there are like sort of wealthy people here that have like these pampered lives too like there's these okay. beautiful homes and actually you can afford that too as an artist like i went to a party last night at and the, the at this artist's house there were three of them that had their own home like with like a front yard backyard like a barn and barbecue and it was like a huge house well, it's also um, a huge country yeah like physically yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there's not low. a lot of people per kilometer yeah that's right yeah so it, I mean, it's very pretty. There, it's really green right now, and, and and it is it's relatively affordable. If you're like I said, if you're living here, you're not just. I mean, it's really only eating out, and then these office the the store hours things. That and and do you feel like uh, I always have the impression that Scandinavians are kind of to themselves unless they drink? Hmm, I don't know. If that's true. Like everyone always says, yeah, like that. But I I don't know. I'm I find everyone very very friendly, but. I also just like walk right up to them like hey what's going on (laughs) so uh and they're very receptive to that when i've done it but maybe because i'm like a breath of fresh air i don't know (laughs) yeah but is it a different uh uh, vibe than being in frankfurt 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it's less, there's less capitalism. <laughs> okay. Like I said, like I can't get, I actually can't, it's hard to buy things. And then the things that you can buy are, are more expensive. Generally. Is there, is there a Norwegian uh, competitor to Amazon? No, like, so actually like one of the, uh, the sort of the people involved in the residency here, one of the administrators like went and had to go to Sweden to to buy stuff for the residency because it's like cheaper. Mm-hmm. So they, they go on trips to other countries to get affordable prices. Yeah. Um, it's kind of reminds me of Canada that way though. Like often Canadians would go across the border to the United States to buy things cheaper and stuff. Um, and then, we don't, and then we, Americans go to Canada for cheaper healthcare. <laughs> Americans just go to Canada when they've given up on America and then they're like, Oh, how come I can't get my Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, yeah. It's great. I love being here. I love every country has something something really awesome about it. I don't um, think so. Some how's New York? How's, how's New York? Uh, New York is nice. A bit hot for me. Uh, it's today's thirty five degrees. I think mm, you'd love Oslo. Sixteen degrees and raining. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Computer weather. No, I, I mean I love heat when I'm at the beach. But if in the middle of a city, uh, I prefer twenty five degrees. Uh, Mm, I, I mean, it's still my dream to have an, a full podcast about the weather, but that'll be another episode. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about doing that a bunch of times. And like, yeah. yeah. So what were you going to talk about today? Uh, you, so every week is either I or Jeremy chooses the topic, and this week you chose a topic. Yeah, what did I choose? <laughs> Remixing appropriation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it was on my mind because I was like, I was at a museum here in Oslo, and it's like a private museum owned by Astrup Fernley, which is like a ship, big shipping company. And then they've accumulated like, you know, Damien Hirst and all these big artists. And then eventually they opened a museum. Like it's a very popular thing to do, I guess, once you get a collection too big for your home. <laughs> uh, and the city even donated, you know, space for them to be in. Actually, they're very, very friendly. Teresa, who's a curator there, like invited the whole residency gang down, gave us a tour, tickets. They're always How did you friendly. like the exhibition? Um, well, so they have an exhibition on about China, which is pretty good. And it's mostly built from works that they purchased which you know of course you could be critical and say they're just trying to increase the value of the work but really like in Norway that's not really a thing there's not much of a private art market here so it's kind of a nice thing to do to put up the work for exhibition and it was contemporary work there's one new work on loan I guess a new Ai Weiwei work but um, but then there's like a permanent collection and the reason I bring I brought this whole thing up is that the they had they hung they just rehung their permanent collection so I was like going through it and seeing it again for the first time and they made this funny choice where like they when you first come in there's some Damien Hirst stuff but then you turn right and you go down this long hallway and there's like the first thing you see is this Sherry Levine piece you know where she's re-photographed uh, mm-hmm. uh, famous you know photographers and should we explain the, a little bit for our listeners or, or later about Sherry Levine yeah what do you want me to explain well what do you want to jump in well the, just the fact that uh I don't know if she was the one, but she she really no. But we we can talk about that later. You can talk about the exhibition more. Uh, well, yeah. Well, it, it's like the after Walker Evans uh, work, where you know Sherry Levine, who was um, uh, a female photographer, kind of upset at the history of uh, like not upset at the history, but like you know critical of the history of men uh, photographing uh, the world through their lens, through their perspective reappropriated that perspective by re-photographing the work of um, 
Walker Evans, who is like American photographer. But the so that there's that work which I really like. It's like this conceptual work. Uh, yeah, and and it, it it brings technology and art together because redrawing a painting is something a lot of students will do to get to know the work better. Mm-hmm. But rephotographing seems such a simple task, and there's no creativity involved, and so. It, it becomes a very critical and intellectual gesture and not something of like learning how to draw. Yeah. But it, but yeah, it asks and, those questions. Yeah, and it, I think, you know, that, that work was uh, done at a time where, you know, yeah, that helped cement this idea of conceptual art. Uh, that, that, that alone, just that... that also uh, by the removal of skill. Yeah. Because there is still a skill in an Ansel Adams type of photography where you have to capture nature at its best. Mm-hmm. But when you're just re-photographing a photograph and you just light the photo as good as you can, like it's a mechanical, you're basically a human Xerox machine. And so by removing any skill, uh, the hand or a- any of that, uh, your role is more the role of a critic than of an artist. And so mm-hmm. this is always my my big gripe with appropriation that uh, it was interesting for a while, but now because... It almost seems naive to create something if you're not appropriating something. People are like, wait, you made something? <laughs> That's not art. Well, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I think of that as like seminal postmodern work, right? I think uh, after Walker Evans. When was it made? I think it's like late '70s or early '80s. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and then Richard Prince kind of popified the idea and, and ran with it. Yeah. So that. How did you know that's where I was going next? So you like history is linear. <laughs> So you walk along this hallway, and then at the end of it, they have one of Richard Prince's Instagram kind of canvases or whatever, where he re-photographed Instagram, but basically just printed uh, other work, other artists' uh, profile or selfies on Instagram. But you also have to mention his uh, cowboy works. Actually, it's funny, too, because they, in, like, throughout, you know, leading from the, the Sherry Levine piece to that piece, they have his cowboy works uh, mixed in. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. about that? It's more like you're the you because we always talk, call you the cowboy of the podcast. <laughs> Yeehaw. <laughs> no, uh, uh, I think Richard Prince took the idea of re-photography and applied it to pop culture. So he would re-photograph advertisements or magazine ads or fashion photographs. So mm-hmm. um, I think if you look at a Sherry Levine, it, 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 for most people it feels very distant. But when mm-hmm. you see uh, uh, Richard Prince, he always takes a topic that people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. So there's more of an emotional connection, and it's it's more pop, but it appeals to more people. So uh, he, for that reason, there's a bigger audience. Yeah, but there's also like potentially bigger controversy. I think in this yeah. latest work, and you know, yeah, you but and that's I both the whole. That's a, the, Aside from the moral issues, which I think are very dangerous to to be uh, apply a moral lens to art, mm-hmm. um, but why is that dangerous? Because it's restrictive. So if you see as art as being something separate from society and being uh, a free zone for a sort of, um, if if you want to explore perception, you have to let go of morals a little bit. If you want a fundamental research of perception. And so if you start to restrict, like, no, those issues can't be addressed because people are not comfortable with it, mm-hmm. then you're restricting the, the exploration of the senses. Hmm. I tend to disagree, but, yeah. you know, I think that for I know you, you that... Do. Yeah. <laughs> because I really believe that art 
is a reflection of culture and society. So, it, you know, for it to be separate is doesn't. I mean, it can be separate in its in that a reflection as a reflection, it can't really be separate. Would be my position because you know, you're hoping that culture and society responds to the work, and when they respond to the work, you're now in a feedback loop. You're in dialogue, and that's actually. One of the interesting things about, I think, appropriation, uh, you know, it boils down to that and sort of the original postmodern position, which was that, like, no, in, in a way, you know, subjectivity reigns, right? That the, you know, Barthes, uh, the writer, you know, said, Roland Barthes said, you know, the, the author is dead and, you know, the birth of the reader. And that was like 30 years ago. And that the reader's point of view and their subjectivity is where the work happens. Um, and in a Sherry Levine piece and in a Richard Prince piece, even to your point regarding you know, the pop artist position, the audience, like you said, is bringing most of the material to the work, right? The, and, and, the, art, the artist uh, is simply framing the context for, for the For reader. me, the, the act of uh, appropriation mm-hmm. uh, brings the artist more to the realm of a critic than a, an artist. Not fully, but... It, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's tempting to always have some flavor of appropriation in your work because it, it seems like a more intellectual thing than just looking at something and making a drawing. Well, when you're in school or maybe even like just in discussion, you know, like did you did anyone ever say to you like, well, it's impossible to make a new image, right? Like the only thing we can do is recontextualize. Yeah, that's what losers say. <laughs> that's like, but that's the postmodern. That's the quintessential kind yeah, of postmodern. Yeah, but I think that's been disproven because there's definitely in the last thirty years images have arisen that didn't exist before, and they might reference previous things. But that's kind of like James Bridle's new aesthetic or something that you're referring to, maybe even. No, like, I think just objectively, if you, it, it, I think it's. There's been many points, even in physics, where they said, "Well, we're at the end of physics. There's no, there's nothing new to be done." Mm. And they said that a hundred years ago. And of course, a lot of stuff happened. Well, it's funny because when I was in school, uh, and still one of my good friends is this um, this guy Tasman Richardson. In Canada. He's a Canadian artist and a musician. And him and I disagree on a lot of things. In a lot of ways, our relationship, you and I, is similar to Tasman. Uh, but his work, he he was a video art student at the same time I was at a different school, and he was like, "There's no point of recording anything, Jeremy, because every image exists." that I could ever imagine in cinema uh, or in television. And And then the Kardashians came along. (laughs) Well, yeah, basically, like, if you want an image of a leg... then Trump came along and nobody thought it was possible. Well, his point would be like, hey, you want an image of, like, someone chopping their leg off? I can show you, like, ten Japanese films where that happens. There's no need to to refilm another leg being chopped. Yeah. And then he he would make these collage kind of videos that were also music, like he considered... He would do this like uh, kind of hardcore, like or techno kind of music. Um, actually, there's a proper term for it that I'm not using. He's probably cringing if he's listening to this. But where he would just slice the video really thin to make beats. And of course, we all also know that like you know there was this uh, DJ culture in the 1990s with like Ninja Tune records and stuff. And of course, like hip hop music before that. Where it was about like you know going through the archives of the record the store, samplism, pulling out and culture jamming, and the, yeah. that movement. Yeah, yeah, and then some artists um, started to play with that with video because it became possible. Because you know, and then if it, you know, I, but my friend Tasman used to go to the video store and he'd be like, "Do you have anything with this in the video?" Like he would go to the video store, like people were going to the record store at the time. So I always thought that was kind of exciting, but that was very much like the late '90s. 
view on appropriation, which was like, yeah, I'm just going to riff off all these different... It was like sampling. And by doing that, a new way of working was created. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they contradicted the the whole idea, the the sort of cynical idea that nothing new is possible, and by saying that they did something new. Well, they're making something new from what's old. Now, in real... But that's also, it, it seems like a very logical step that... If, if human technology and uh, recording and archive explodes and it's available, it's, it's logical that it will be used. Mm. Like if yeah. you grow up in a library, of course you're going to make art with what's around you. Right, and just like artists for decades were sort of learn from previous masters or whatever, right? Yeah. But I feel for like reason. culture has kind of moved on like the the idea of sampling and appropriation and copying is is so has been explored so far that we don't even think about it anymore. Well, I think so. That's where I, I you know I became interested. I'm interested because I think we do, and we're at a point now where because of sort of different inequalities, let's put it this way, and a certain political alertness, um, there are certain gestures that maybe like in the late '90s we've been like that's a cool remix and now you'd be like that's a culture that's a like really dangerous uh identity politic you're playing with there Mm. like you're potentially like ripping off uh another culture's um not only style but like a problem or social rhetoric for your and and for your own privilege or something there there was a an interview the bbc did a documentary on roy lichtenstein Mm mm-hmm or Steen, I always forget. And they went with a comic book artist to the museum and looked at Lichtenstein's work and looked at the original comics. And mm. the comic book artist argued that the originals were even better than Lichtenstein's, but I don't even think that's a relevant question. But he did bring up, in music, there's a whole legal system about cover versions and sampling and royalties, and why mm-hmm. does that not exist for visual art? So, yes, Lichtenstein could take source material... Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't change it too much, then he should pay royalties to the original creator. Right. Well, there's this rule there, or law in the United States, right, where it's uh, if in in moments where it's satire, so you can appropriate for satire. So like, like can, Weird Al Yankovic doesn't have to pay royalties, but if someone right. does a, a sincere cover version, you do? Mm, a cover is allowed, and it's but as you long pay as to, the material... But you do a cover. Mm, you're not allowed to sample just raw unless unless it's small enough that it's like i think i can't remember the exact law but one of the main things is you have to there's a modification rule i can't remember the percentage whether it's yeah, 80% but, but for a, or 70%. a cover version you pay right i don't think you do i think you're allowed to do a cover no like like devo covered the rolling stones satisfaction mm-hmm. i think they pay the rolling stones for that like a royalty yeah but then they don't pay at the at the outset do they that doesn't make sense does it that's really weird is it well, because they're re-performing. I guess yeah. you're right. Hmm. I, I, so I that's. Feel, I, I just think I don't know this, the exact specifications, but I think there's a whole ecosystem in music. I'm looking it up yeah. <laughs> to cover a song. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel like we yeah. have to get this wrong. Yeah. We we have to get this right. Sorry, not, we don't have to get this wrong. A different. I'm pretty sure you have to pay to use a cover version. A mechanical license is so named because the author of the original song does not have to give his or her permission to get one. It's mechanical. Royalties for cover songs. Uh, an original song is a great example of copyright material. To cover a song is a new performance of an original song or recording like 
what you see on popular TV shows, Glee and American Idol. So if your band wants to cover another artist's song, what do you have to do? The answer depends mm, on whether you want to simply pay this, play the song live or record it. Hmm. So you can play yeah, it live. but it's not it's not just up for grabs, isn't it? Like you can just oh. play any song. So if you want, if anyone who plays copyright music in a public establishment is required to obtain advance permission from the copyright owner or the representative. Yeah, but in, I think in art, the economy is so small. It became a little bit bigger, but for mm-hmm. Sherry Levine to rephotograph some photos mm-hmm. is very different than when Devo covers the Rolling Stones. But this, I remember when I was in school, this was the whole issue. I remember they even brought in like lawyers for us to consult as students. Like it was the only professional practice they provided, which is like, because I think in the mid 2000s, the debate was about, you know, because the artists were appropriating so much copyright material in their work, uh, especially as a video artist, um, you like, you might take a song or this or that. And then, you know, you were, you could get yourself into legal trouble. And in fact, uh, it, it still bothers me. Like, I still get caught up in this debate because legally, anyway, the legal part of this debate because I have a lot of work on YouTube and sometimes I'll have music on YouTube. And um, I actually have a video that is really crazy where I, I, this is a, lo- a video I did a long time ago. And in the background, it was a video where I was like really pissed off about the, the world not doing enough to acknowledge the Iraq war. So that was how long ago it was. And there's, I'm painting, like doing this video painting, this like software painting over top of this guy getting beheaded uh the first uh person to be beheaded in iraq and like started the whole beheading trend (laughs) (laughs) but uh i got a notice like a few weeks ago three weeks ago from no maybe it was more maybe like two months ago from youtube saying hey there's a copyright claim against the audio in your video of this person being beheaded (laughs) and it's of the guy screaming and it's like the notices for like this band that's like death metal something <laughs> it's like oh so they're allowed to use the scream right like and because they have yeah. copyright music i had the I, same thing you did like yeah. a beheading <laughs> no but i had a i used a sound in a website uh that was an open source sound from the internet but then this band had used the open source and sampled the sound in a song and then youtube claimed that i was using that song mm. when i wasn't so that it's also funny when we talk about AI and being so smart, but it's usually really stupid. Well, a lot of, yeah, a lot of copyright is being monitored by AI because, of course, there's like, what is it, like a day worth of video or content uploaded to the Internet every hour or something like that? Every second. So there's no way humans could review it. But, yeah. you know, the, the other crazy thing is it's impacted my live performances when I was doing stream performances for a while. I remember I was doing a Rhizome benefit and I was like, dancing to songs like kind of doing a cam whore kind of performance and taking requests and in in augmented reality and then i would play songs and youtube would detect the song while i would like as i put it on it would like uh shut down the stream and be like this is a copyright material that you're trying to like yeah. uh, stream and i'd be like i'm actually performing at a benefit <laughs> like let me raise money for charity so you have to start your own streaming service well, I think it's like it's interesting because it limits our ability to express ourselves. And for you know, for a second, I'm almost taking your position, which is like, you know, in matters of cultural appropriation, but also just in like pure like uh, referencing another work or uh, remixing. It's almost like academic referencing. Well, we're limited. Like algorithms are now limiting our potential to actually 
talk about certain you know issues or refer to certain things <laughs> like you could imagine you're doing a news story about that thing and that they would cut that off um, yeah. but yeah I, I don't g- know the solution it's it's so complicated but it does fold back on this Richard Prince thing for a second here where you know he represented other artists Instagram work right and what I think it all comes down to for me or the the, the way I've been thinking about it is is about power right so Richard Prince super powerful artists you know no one can yeah, disagree that, that's very successful it's always been my theory that appropriation is a form of bullying yeah yeah wow i'm happy to hear you <laughs> so like in his position yeah like it's really it's wrong but for the him thing to is people usually sell. like the bad guy more than the good guy and if if mm-hmm. you watch a movie often the the antagonist is more fascinating and people were really angry when was it at the Gagosian that, that that work was originally unveiled? I remember like well when the show happened in New York, uh, I remember people were livid about this this work of representing Instagram. And I think like some in, you know internet art kind of people like Janet Hayes or something were in some of the works, and so you know their own followers were like, ah, how can Richard Prince do this and not pay any of these people? Blah blah blah. Here's a question though, like if Richard Prince had paid all of the artists that he appropriated. Would it have been any different, like a copyright kind of situation? Like had said, "Here's my privilege. I'm going to like sell these paintings. You're in them, well, and you're going to like share some of the profit." There's there's two there's two different sides. There's the the legal moral issue, like the real mm-hmm. world, and then there's the artistic intent and discussion. So when you look at the history of appropriation and the history of re-photography. Digital re-photography is interesting because I read in an interview with Richard Prince, the thing that he liked about this project so much was that he didn't use any Photoshop. It was a pure screenshot and he he would leave his signature by leaving a comment below the photo. Mm. And so this whole idea, this this trajectory that we've had from Sherry Levine, there was always subjectivity in what type of film is used, how do you light the photo, Mm -hmm. and there's all these ways of re-photographing that add what type of lens do you use there's always some distortion but when you take a screenshot it's a very pure form of of re-photography right and then there's there's the other issue that it's very normal to reshare something within the digital like to retweet or to reblog is a very normal idea but then money comes into play because he prints it and presents it in a very expensive uh, room and gets a lot of money for it and it becomes this uh, trophy object. So, it, for me, the first part, the 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 artistic intent and the and the the comment on on recontextualizing is interesting. And then uh, mm-hmm. the other part is kind of, and that's what I mean that a bad guy or the antagonist is can be very interesting. Is it's kind of throwing salt in the wounds of uh, internet culture. Everybody's broke, but they're still spending so much time on these platforms that billionaires are getting rich off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also chooses... A friend of mine called all these girls unpaid strippers. So I'll probably mm-hmm. get a lot of heat for this. But uh, a lot of girls are exposing themselves for attention and not getting money in, in return. Mm-hmm. So And then for someone to actually monetize it is a very twisted, weird, sick, interesting joke. Yeah, I mean, I think power, it, like, he's abusing his position yeah, of power. Yeah, but, but like, the, the, so the, the you, idea that those girls uh, are building a following and creating a sort of microeconomy around... Because he, he mm-hmm. it's specifically, it's also the male gaze. It's, yeah. 
it's also interesting in in an honest way of like what dudes are doing on their phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I th- I think I can like I I want to like telescope out or kind of broaden it a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I no, like no, the complexity no. of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the but the work doesn't. It seems very simple to me. Like it's almost like just a middle finger kind of move from someone in power. Um, like, yeah. Like, you know, like I'm conceptually smarter than you, right? And look what I've done kind of thing. And I'm a jerk and I... I'm a jerk and I... Yeah, I'm a jerk and I can get away with it. Yeah, your bully comment I think was great. And I, I know that, like, I know this is not the political podcast, but I think it's we can't not mention that at the Whitney Biennial this year, there was this issue of appropriation with Dana Schutz and... Well, that's not really... That's painting. It's a different thing than appropriation. Why? Why is it different? Because there's already a manual gesture and there's a translation. And I think it's so many steps removed. You know, when H&M does fashion, there's like, they have to, they they always copy whatever is going on in high fashion. Mm-hmm. And they market it to a bigger... And there's like a certain... <laughs> you're, make, you're making me remember though that fashion is like... does So cultural appropriation is what fashion kind of takes advantage of the most and seems to get away with. Yeah. I don't with, know if it's... In Zoolander, when they, when they make a, a homeless uh, fashion line. Derelict. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always think of that. And then it's like, oh yeah, guess what? The, you know, the, the French designers thought of... It's always like some colonial power presents what we found in the colonies you know it's like oh yeah it's a indian headdress or this indigenous this or that I, and, this uh, is we're, we're going off topic a little bit but i met malcolm mclaren once uh, mm. the the manager and creator of the sex pistols and um i had this book of duchamp and duchamp made this haircut of the future in 1935 and it, it was basically a punk haircut it was someone with very long hair and he put a lot of uh, hair gel or whatever mm-hmm. in it, and it had spikes that were like a meter long so just a crazy mm-hmm. haircut in the eyes of Dali mm-hmm. and I asked him oh did you think of this when you created the punk hairstyles and he's like no we referenced 19th century wigs because aristocrats would wear mohawk wigs to make fun of Native Americans at parties mm-hmm. so that's <laughs> how fun and it, it wasn't even subtle it was but like oh look at we're dressing <laughs> as the stupid Indians <laughs> But you're bringing up like kind of the well, that's pretty bad too, right? Because it's like, but yeah, you you were talking about uh, uh, colonial power, like at the height of when colonial colonialism wasn't even considered a bad thing. Uh, right, people were literally making fun of the people they were killing. I think blackface was acceptable at that time too. Probably, yeah. like there were a lot of bad things, um, and you still kind of hear every year like. So you th- you think this Richard Prince thing is in that line? Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, and I, but but here's where I think we can make it like about all of our listeners and about you and I, which is where when you're doing when you're making work, um, it's very common that you will like look at your work in context of art history, right? Or be influenced by other artists or cultures, but like you're probably doing some a, kind a, of research. A long dialogue over centuries. Yeah, and so like there's there's borrowing and there's stealing and then there's like bullying and there's sharing. And I think that I find it like it's not black and white and it's really interesting. Um, and, you know, sometimes it can get to this extreme level as it did at the Whitney, I think, where people are calling for the work to be destroyed, which is like burning books. Uh, and maybe rightly so. But like uh, there's also this like 
history of artists working and riffing off of each other to advance art. But of course, that's yeah, different and there's, than... There's, there's, uh, an artist contribute a previous work or parody it or just... Yeah, and so you might think like, oh, that's just stylistic. But we've like, you know, we're long and far into like social practice and conceptual practice and relational practice. So when you now when you're referencing, uh, you know, in in your work, when you're sort of appropriating, you're usually appropriating probably like some social dynamic or some some yeah some kind of power structure is even like something that you might appropriate because you're trying to talk about that thing. Like uh, to talk about capital, it's really hard not to appropriate the aesthetics of business as an example, right? But, you know, as Dis has done or K-Hole or something like that, but to do it in a sophisticated ma- way might need, might require that you actually appropriate the modes of production, like as Warhol might have done with his factory or something like that. But if you like transplant that and say like, I'm not interested in capital, I'm interested in sociology. And there's an artist that I always, um, I always think of and I, I'm never quite certain if she like got really right or really wrong, but she's not really around so much anymore. But it's this artist Nikki Lee, and I remember when I was in school, she would, she was like a Korean artist, and what she would do is she'd like get really into a community. She's a photographer uh, and performer, and she would like uh, get to know a community. Like say it's like punks in like the Lower East Side, and she would spend time with them for when, several. When is this? Uh, she would do this throughout the '90s and early 2000s, mid 2000s, and she'd spend time with them until they like she blended in like she'd wear leather jackets she'd pierce her ears she'd dye her hair get a mohawk and then they would accept her as one of their own even though you know she wasn't from that but she would just take on all of the appearances of that it's hard to go from face tattoos and then blend into wall street well she did that So, (laughs) so she did that she went she did do wall street she also did like seniors homes she did like latino culture and that's where it's like there was this line where she would like um, you know, sometimes be in a subculture where it was almost like blackface, right? But she would like blend in and get the the group's permission to be a part of the group and become friends with them, and then take a portrait of herself with them at the end of the at so the end of the project. My my problem with uh, too much politics in art is that. Uh, but is that political work? I mean, that was the, no, no, know. no, no. But the way we talk about it is political. Mm. Um, so my my problem is that. At some point, it's so much story and and not much looking. Mm. So, but in this work, you can't help but look because you realize that like a subculture, in the case of her work, is 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 created like culture is created from visual representation, right? Okay, but do Which you, gets back to do the you heart think of you issue. would get that out of the photos without knowing all the history and the and the story? Yeah, because she's a Korean woman who is like hanging out with a bunch of white old seniors playing bridge in one of the photos or she's like Mm-mm. a Korean woman who's in this punk scene or a Korean yeah, woman Yeah, I haven't seen the work so it, it, but it's not about this work specifically but uh. mm, I know but yeah I think like I, an artist positions themselves in like I think the reason I use it is because an artist positions themselves within various subcultures even when they choose a style right like you might call yourself like a pop artist and then it's like oh yeah I'm part of the this pop art These there's all these kind of codes that represent pop art and I'm going to appropriate those codes so that I belong to this group. Yeah. Um, and so that practice of appropriation is one of creating a sense of belonging and protection and to, to avoid this bullying problem that we were just mentioning, right? I'll protect myself yeah. with the credibility so, of others. And then there's the, 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 there's another issue that once you, you cross the line that's saying appropriation, sampling, everything's fair game. Mm-hmm. Like, 
and and even if you're not appropriating, you seem kind of naive. So that's a really hard thing to follow up because it's almost saying if if a whole generation said nothing new can be made, and all of a sudden somebody stands up and says, "Well, I I think I can make something new," mm-hmm. and then immediately everybody's like, "No, you're not." Yeah. Well, that's the th- I think that's why people some people are getting pissed off right now. So the other side of the politic is like certain people are writing up, you know, people are writing op-eds these days where they're like, we've reached, you know, there's always these climax points. We've reached a point of like where microaggression and political correctness is out of control. Artists can't even express themselves anymore, which is like just as hysteric on the wrong side. No, <laughs> but that's not what I was saying. Mm. And, what were you I mean, saying? It, it's a valid point. But what I'm saying is if... Um, if sampling is the norm, or whatever you want to call it, remixing or appropriation, and so mm-hmm. if you then just want to sit down and uh, draw a, oh, I see. a pencil drawing of a coffee cup and write a poem next to it, then everybody's like, well, that's not art, because you're not <laughs> critically addressing anything, you're just drawing something. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the whole counter-movement of something like Juxtapose magazine, where yeah. they, they are appreciating... It's not my cup of tea, but I appreciate something different exists. Well, if I wanted to say something really snobby, I'd be like, "You're talking about deviant art or something like that." Or yeah, yeah. But so, what I what's interesting to me is that okay, we we've reached the point where people are like, nothing new can be uh, created, so we're all remixing and we're basically all curators. Uh, nothing it, it, cura- it and, and creation mm-hmm. is something naive, and then anyone who is 18 who sort of has a tendency to want to make images from scratch and not use uh, source material in the same way. Mm-hmm. They're going to flock to deviant art and just create a whole different uh, world over there. Yeah, and I mean, it, I mean, I guess we're, we we're often talk on this podcast about um, contemporary you, you, art and it's but, like... But it's what I mean, yeah, yeah, what I mean is if you... It's a very deep thing where you say, okay, nothing new can be created, so we're always... It, I think if you look at any of our friends... And work mm-hmm. like all our friends, we all use some form of appropriation in some way. Mm-hmm. It's 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 become so normal. It's like the fabric of a, and even I've seen some of our peers using deviant art kind of thing and appropriating that. Mm-hmm. So if if you had said in the eighties nothing new can be created, but then if you start looking at deviant art, you'd be like, well, I've never seen that image before. <laughs> it looks a bit like that, but it's pretty new, and mm-hmm. I've never seen that image. So that disproves the whole thesis of. Nothing mm-hmm. new can be made, so so we should sample. Yeah, but sam- the resampling or re so if we were to like jump out of art and into cooking, where you know sampling has always been a big part of cooking. Um, <laughs> can I get a sample? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know there are wars fought over different spices that people had tasted. Like, ooh, yeah. I, got, I gotta have that flavor. <laughs> Let's go to Co- war for cola flavor. Yeah, cinnamon's mm-hmm. worth dying for. Uh, in you know, in cooking, it seems much more acceptable that I would have like, you could have like a uh, like a Korean taco, right? Or you could have like a, a Japanese burrito, um, and no one's crying foul like, oh god, like, I can't believe they're ripping off sushi mm-hmm. because there's in cooking there's always been no. It's kind I think of in- there's debates, there's purists, and there's fusion and there's nouvelle and there's traditional and but in cooking there's like sort of this more of a sharing mentality is all i'm saying well there's also more amateurs in cooking everybody Mm. cooks and so like if i but if i ripped off a dish i guess probably among professional chefs they're like oh god like (laughs) pepin stole our (laughs) our signature dish Uh, pepsi stole the coca-cola flavor 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny too because in pat- patents. Uh, um, yeah, you did the, a lot with patents. Well, the first patents were for culinary dishes in ancient Greece. So, like, the first ever thing, pe- ever idea, before copyright, before anything, the first thing first that thing any. Pe- idea people wanted to protect. Protect economically was culinary dishes. Um, so, it was food. Um, so that they, you know, I guess so that they could like continue to make the best world's best pasta or the world's best whatever Greeks ate back then. Um, what do, yeah, what do, it's like the world's best grilled fish. Like what are, <laughs> this is me stereotyping the Greeks or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> the world's best gyros. Yeah. <laughs> no, but imagine you, you had, you would earn royalties on sandwiches and like anytime someone made a sandwich, they'd have to pay you a cent. Yeah, well, Wait, I guess you, that, you you put some food between two slices of bread. You better pay up. <laughs> so I mean, it, it didn't last, obviously, but that that did lead it eventually into the patent system we have but today. But there's, there's still a lot of food patents. But it reminds me, though, in patent uh, law, one of the big changes that led to the industrial revolution was that you were allowed to build. They changed the law to make it possible to appropriate someone else's invention and build on top of it. So. Prior to the you know the, the industrial revolution, if I built like um, let's say the the boiler part of a steam engine, you could not put that boiler in your version of any engine, and so they changed the law so that it's like you could this person did a boiler, this other person did this thing. If I recombine these things and call it a steam engine, I can get a patent for the steam engine and be protected for this new thing. So you could build on top of the work of others. So it encourages progress. Yeah. Yeah, and that actually led to the Industrial Revolution, um, the steam engine, obviously the, the actual invention of the steam engine into the to the kind of world we have today that's gone totally mad. But um, it, it strikes me then art is also built on a similar process of like including yeah, a, the history of the... Not only is it a dialogue, but I do believe it's like you have to leave the world better than you found it. Like, But you take a little bit of what last person did and you build on top of it. But very yeah, few people it, ever build something brand new. It's it's very interesting that at certain moments something can seem new, but it actually isn't. So when abstraction was invented in in the context of art mm-hmm. in the early twentieth century, uh, people were, wow I've never seen this before. But there has been a lot of abstract art in decorative art for centuries, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's also I saw this BBC documentary on the history of cave paintings, and there was a whole bunch of a whole. First of all, it's strange that cave paintings existed in different parts of the world and, and made the same leaps when there was no telecommunication. So they would have a, a leap of representation that happened at the same time in Australia and France, and mm-hmm. nobody really understands why. But also, there were a lot of abstract cave paintings, which historians are even discussing. Is that the sign of an intelligent human being, or is it more like an animal who just runs into the wall with paint on the, on the snout? <laughs> so there's there's examples of of uh, cave paintings where the whole cave is covered in dots, which is kind of like a Damien Hirst. Mm. Um, and and there's a there's a cave painting that's a rectangle divided into nine rectangles that are each a different color. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a Mondrian thirty thousand years ago. So. When we think, oh, Malevich and Kandinsky and oh, that was very radical, it's like, no, it actually happened 30,000 years ago. Mm. So, yeah, what's fresh at the moment might not be, f- yeah. Maybe that's, again, fashion figured that out because they just recycle. It's like, here's the 1950s again. And it, it would be design. funny if, if we really dissect the nature of reality and figure out that fashion is really at the heart of, of human 
<laughs> but what I mean, fashion figured out Capacity. that there are cyclical, there are cycles to you know, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. what you you kind of want what was old. But it does Bell lead me to are back. one thing we haven't talked about at all is like um, is how technology has accelerated the rate and the ease with which we appropriate. So I mentioned my friend who'd like go to the video store and you pick up a, and this is like. You know, you pick up some videos and like and it was easy to chop things together. So there was this point where digital technology well, and computers it, we, and there were, they there thought were, it was easy, but if we look back at it now, oh I, yeah, I, I interned for VJs in in the late nineties, and they mm-hmm. would have suitcases full of VHS tapes and Amigas because those were better dealing with video signal. Mm-hmm. It was so much work compared to now. But it was considered way easier than yeah. like yeah. it had been in the generation. Before and now, of course, yeah. With the internet, we have this like the ultimate uh, machine well, for well, now, referencing for recontextualizing. I think special effects are getting easier. It's it's easier with a personal computer to make almost Hollywood-like quality special effects. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the next paradigm where uh, fan movies will get better and better. But will these fan movies be built built on the top on top of other Hollywood movies or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's the whole thing, right? Because fan movies uh, help the franchise, but can also uh, the franchise can get upset. It's a fine well, line. Well, we we talked about this last week, where we talked about how uh, Bloomcamp was going to release, all, you know, the sci-fi director all of the files made, you know, that he was he used to make the film mm-hmm. and give them to the fans to remake exactly. yeah, the yeah, film. Yeah. That's like a really new way of filmmaking well i you know i think it's an interesting place for us to take this debate which is like the idea of when you make something the the most the thing that you should do the generous act is to actually release it and make it available for everyone open source source software is a kind of form of appropriation right like it's like i made this part and i'm gonna let you take a part of it to make your bigger thing right yeah Um, i think we're also past the point where uh, you, you're either for or against open source and now we can see open source is good for certain things and closed source is good for certain things mm-hmm. I think the, before it was more polarized but the argument I'm trying to make and it's a very dangerous argument um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is like what if you applied open source you know we open source culture basically which is to say took more of a sharing without power because in open source there is a little bit of power in terms of who approves or disapproves of code and i think we need that to keep things like clean but like within culture you know remove copyright you get you know like creative commons right or in software remove uh copyright and you get open source but in culture and art we really don't have terms for discussing this and so we always end up in this quagmire where we're like well, that power relationship, this, Richard Prince, Dick, da-da-da-da. And it's like, it's great for writing editorials, but it's like terrible. Imagine if you're a young artist just trying to figure out, like, what could I make without getting in trouble? <laughs> yeah, then and, you get, go to DeviantArt. Yeah. And yeah, and then you just churn out. because, but and, and, and it's what makes art interesting sometimes and, and allows us to talk about it on podcasts. But there's nothing like open source for art, really. There's like... Or maybe that's the premise on put, upon which all art is already like built. There's many layers of double standards, it seems, because artists think it's totally normal that they can appropriate anything. Mm-hmm. And then when artists get appropriated by the fashion world or when their mm-hmm. work gets used, they get very upset. Yeah. And... Um, well, the same thing among designers, actually. Like, there's, all this, there's always these scandals about... Um, and it's always bound down to power. You know, there's scandals where, like, urban outfitters have stolen this yeah. illustrator's, like, thing for a button and is now selling it for five cents or whatever. Um, 
And that seems wrong because this struggling artist is making like no money and Urban Outfitters just like kind of trawls the internet looking for new ideas. And we've all experienced this probably as an artist where I experienced it with like Snapchat. I think I've told that story before where you find out that a design team or some team somewhere else, a group of people in power are looking at your work as quote unquote for inspiration. You're on the mood board. And yeah, actually, I never get upset about it, but I can see why people do get upset. I'm always like, yes, I find I did make an impact, right? If it reaches well, that level, then it's like culturally like... You it know. is a question of economic power. So if mm-hmm. if uh, uh, your students or a fan or another artist reference your work and there's not that much money involved, I don't think you get upset. But mm-hmm. if uh, a big company on a really big scale is using your image in an ad and making a lot of money off it that's a different thing so I, I really think there's a difference between personal use and commercial use and commercial use becomes different when it's on a different scale but artists are often in commercial context now so it's like you know yeah. and I brought that up a bunch of times and the institutions are implicit in that where it's like they're making work for sale to a mark you know and yeah, so yeah but the, if they're selling something for 10,000 is different than when Coca-Cola is selling something and making 10 billion mm-hmm yeah, I mean, there's no denying it. But maybe that's what it, it all just comes down to this bully argument, I guess. You made the good point right away today. Yeah, I, and but the the um, the duality of the bullying is that the the bully is so fascinating. Everybody writes about it, talks about it. It comes up all the time. Nobody mm-hmm. talks about uh, some landscape painter. It's just doing their own thing, the new thing. The, yeah, like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The these the these very subtle things that are just happening somewhere, and it 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 doesn't get as many clicks. Hmm. Because there's no power. I don't know. Like people like drama, I guess. Well, all good narrative uh, requires there to be conflict, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's evil. <laughs> yeah. So somehow we got to get out of this conversation and into discussing. You wanted to talk about uh, Apple's WWDC conference. <laughs> worst segue ever. <laughs> we need a subway jingle. We going. want to talk about the new HomePods. <laughs> and how they appropriated the tampon shape. <laughs> so yeah. And how uh, that's bullying to women. Well, let's like our good point. I think is pretty resolved, which is like, hey, don't bully. If you're in a position of power, don't steal from other people without. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm saying it's bullying. I'm not saying don't do it. (laughs) So you're pro bullying. I'm saying it's very interesting if it's done well. Yeah, like think think of um, think of a few movies. I think often the bad guy makes the movie much more interesting, and I said it could be a woman as well, but the the antagonist. I'm working on a project right now. Or I'm pitching it and I'm going to share it because like I'm one of those artists was like if I have a good idea I hope other people steal it but the idea is to create a platform where you can appropriate other people's identities and then like own that identity collectively with some other people like a cooperative for an identity I've talked about cooperatives I think on this podcast before and then make artwork as another artist's identity which there's a history for like there's like uh, Karen Elliott or Monty Katzen, like this idea of the pseudo or rather like appropriated identity or open pop star. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but um, and also there's the Gorilla Girls that had this sort of like open feminist identity platform. But I have this idea for like, you know, why not trade identities with someone in power? Like, why can't I be Richard Prince um, and maybe like 
fuck over Richard Prince? <laughs> uh, or why can't someone that's like just starting out doing landscape paintings be Damien Hirst um, for a few weeks? Uh, yeah, but it, 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 to me it's also interesting that uh, whatever's uh, on the mind of the masses, uh, it, it does get the most clicks. It might not be the most interesting to you, so you can just mm-hmm. ignore it. That's also like, oh, that's not interesting to me. That's true. That's true. That's and I, I think that's a more powerful way of dealing with it than bringing more attention to it. Hmm. Yeah, I just can't ignore things. I'm not yeah. very good at it. I think, yeah, it's, it's hard not to get caught up in current events, but they're often not so important. I don't know if that's true. I mean, uh, there it would be like in, during the French Revolution and people were like, yeah, you know, I don't think this thing's that important or like during the Second World War. Well, that, that was, it was funny... Uh, I've always been very fascinated with Richard Prince, but in another interview, he talked about how nobody knows who the mayor of Paris was in the time of Matisse. It's, like, it's really not that important, these current but, events. Did the mayor of Paris have any impact? Like if he had done something or she had done something important? I don't know, but I, I, I don't know exactly what I mean. But there's something about art being this very long line of uh, just an artist staring at something and processing it and and like the rest of the world is in chaos and on fire there was another question they asked David Hockney why he didn't make work that addressed the war and uh, the crisis that we're in and he says the world's always in a crisis and he just didn't want to make work about that well because he's not in the crisis like he's like peacefully got his iPad and He's yeah, hanging out in this, yeah. Like, and he's honest mansion. about where he comes from. So he's not living in the media sphere. Mm. He's like, I grew up near the n- nature in, in uh, England, and that's what I'm going to make work about. I live in L.A., and I yeah, sit by the a, pool. Of course he's privileged. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that he has to address the war in Syria. Hmm. The, you're, you're, this is a whole other podcast, which is like, whether we have a responsibility well, to I, the society. I, I think that I, I get very... Um, all I'm upset. saying, I get yeah. very upset in talking about politics, also for many reasons. But I, I almost feel like you, in this day and age, you have to defend being interested in art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're just—I'm just saying that like it's impossible to separate some of these uh, things from any work of art, right? Like, uh, and even you know, Richard. Prince yeah, but if if you look at a lot of great works of art throughout history, the pyramids. You could mm-hmm. look at them from an economic or sociological or anthropological lens, or you could look at them from an architectural formal lens. And so both of those lenses are valid. But the pyramids didn't ignore their present context. They're like, yeah, slavery works for us, so we're going to build like really big monuments to slavery. That's what, they, that's what pyramids that's, are. That's a, a perception of it. And another <laughs> perception is, what can human imagination do? Yeah, but they're like, how are we going to pull this off? They're like, we're going to have to enslave half of our empire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so WWDC. But you could also argue that other societies that that also had slaves didn't use slaves in an interesting way. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I really don't want no, to. No, I'm not. I'm not saying slavery is okay. Whatever. Of course not. No, no, no. But you're what not saying I'm that, saying but is they're, that they're the contextual if, material. If you're interested in human imagination, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Even in this present day, you have to be allowed to let your mind go freely and not be concerned about 
every detail is like okay I'm sitting in a room who is well, that, supplying yeah. the electricity okay. how where did the wood come from in this so room so now you're making a really good point in my opinion which is like at a certain point and I think it's actually the thesis of this whole podcast you have to open yourself up to be vulnerable right or or potentially just feel like be present and express oneself as you've talked about as yeah, but, an individual yeah and it's also about fundamental research so be, at some point if you say I want to research color and at this moment I cannot address the mine where this pigment was made because I'm thinking about something that's like if a philosopher had to always justify the chair he or she is sitting on mm -hmm. it's like at some point I'm not thinking about the chair I'm not thinking about the roof I'm not thinking about my paycheck I'm, because if you have to address all of that at the yeah. same time you can't focus but that's the whole that's the whole point right is that you're talking about the frame but the frame has and I sometimes call it the stack right But the frame, the thing that that you that allows you to like, you know, ignore everything else, has widened, right? And so, the frame today, and the internet has helped us do this, has made the frame like just so so big. The frame is like stretches to the edges of the universe, right? In the time of the pyramids, the frame was tiny. It was like, yeah, I can see like over the horizon, and I can see what my people are doing, and da da da. Yeah. da. But the frame now, or like to like. To get into technology, I like but to say the But does that mean the as the frame widens, art should be more about uh, current events? Well, I think this is the choice of the artist to to frame the work, right? And so you can you can you still have the power to choose a small frame, and no one's going to be like, "Oh, your frame's tiny." It's but you're going to create. more I do think a lot of people say, "Oh, your frame's tiny." No, but they say you created intim an intimate work. That's what they'll say. <laughs> It's so intimate and they'll come yeah. up close and look at the brush strokes right because they're not seeing the frame has constrained their point of view I, yeah. I, when I, I remember my, when I was in school I had a great teacher uh, who's like you know everything that you work on or every subject you work on is a is a is a room or a house and there are different windows through which you can look at the room and through every window you'll see something different right but you choose what window to look through And as an artist, you have the ability to kind of reconfigure that room and you have the ability to like make the window bigger or smaller or put or, or place it in different places. And that's still under your control. I mean, I'm not saying that everything has to be about everything, though there's that great video game we've talked <laughs> called everything. But like we have reached a point in our society where everything is available, right? Like the Internet has made, quote unquote, everything available except for the lived experience. And so it doesn't. You know, it never surprises me that intimate experiences, you know, experiences that happen in real time, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, where the frame is the present and it's what happens in the present by chance is what, you know, quite a few people are drawn to because it escapes that reality of the burden of recontextualization, uh, of reappropriation and reference. But it, it doesn't really ever. I mean, but you can control it to a certain extent. This has gotten really super philosophical, but yeah, which is good. But uh, um, yeah, I don't know how to articulate. There's like a certain limit to my. Uh, at at some point, I can't explain stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. It's really hard at some point, and it's really hard to explain why it's important to stare at an orange when the the world is burning. But somehow, I, it's important. Yeah, but I just think of every conceptual artwork is in two dimensions, and then there's a third dimension, which is the actual concept. So the two dimensions are the visual plane, and then the third dimension is the conceptual layer or the stack of the cultural layer. You could argue maybe that's a fourth dimension or something for 3D works, but mm -hmm. um, that fourth dimension comprises a lot of what we consider the meaning of the work. 
Um, and that meaning shifts over time. That's one of the great things about art too. Like art that's really good manages to like, uh, that fourth dimension manages to like kind of change or evolve as time marches on, right? So we revisit works and we're like, oh, it means something different. This Basquiat like means something completely different well, to ba- today. Basquiat is an, is an interesting uh, example where I think there's a lot of idealism in the art for democratization. Mm-hmm. So they say the market is so elitist and it's excluding a lot of people from uh, art making and it's excluding a lot of people from uh, uh, absorbing art. So we should make art, we, we should have grants and we should have a system where everybody participates and it's not about money. And then I went to see uh, a big Basquiat exhibition at Gagosian. Mm-hmm. And the audience I saw there was so mixed in age and race and income, and it was people from all walks of life that I've never seen in any state-funded exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm not arguing. I'm just saying, what I'm saying is that often when art is elitist, it's not the distribution; it's the intent or the the spirit of the work. I agree with you that like if you make if you try and suffocate the work with like layers of uh, sort of rhetoric or like explanation yeah like like documenta is happening right now and i'm sure it's a lot about um income inequality refugees and and all these issues that are addressed but they're addressed in a very elitist way and of course you and they've been criticized they've been criticized for that already. yeah but you include if you go to a keith herring exhibition Mm-hmm. you'll see a lot more people from different walks of life. And it, it was really the Gagosian exhibition uh, being that Chelsea is sort of it's extreme gentrification where most middle to high galleries can't even afford to be there, so it's going to end up only four galleries can be there. And I saw the exhibition, and I'd never seen that type of audience at a... Mm-hmm. It's the type of audience you would see at a day in the park, you know, mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. see everybody. You mm-hmm. see... Rich old people, you see young families, uh, you just see everybody. And that's mm-hmm. what I saw at that Gagosian exhibition, even though the distribution was, it, it, it was the, the most expensive contemporary artwork ever sold. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's extreme capitalism at its most uh, visible extreme. And st- but the audience was so much more mixed than you would see a documenta. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, Basquiat just like covered so much. Uh, I mean, it's just it, like such a great artist that died, and then it's such a great story, and that, it, but not you know, dying in this prime and stuff like, um, not of like in any glamorous way, but the no, work, but the, also the work being is, of, of color, and yeah, and I think the work is just so full of energy. It feels like, I mean, there's just it, it appeals to all the senses, you know? yeah. Um, and it's and it's politically powerful. You know, I don't think you can ignore that because it's a it's about self expression and yeah. assertion. Yeah. And uh, no, it's politically explicit. Yeah, and but does so in a way that's I think welcoming or inviting. Um, yeah. Which I've talked about before being like I think really important is that if you are going to you know take that position that you open yourself. Yeah, up but it, but it's interesting that he as an artist definitely addressed the elite art world. He wasn't satisfied just making marks on the street. He mm-hmm. said, no, I want to and he really wanted to be with Castelli that didn't work out. He was super bummed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he really wanted the top tier old people blue chip uh, to world. also embrace the Yeah, he wasn't the Keith Herring was more like, "Okay, I'll create the pop shop and I'll have 
uh, items for everybody under 25 bucks and even if I'm losing money on it it's important that teenagers can collect my work mm-hmm. and and I think Basquiat is really the example of just the weirdo misfit artist who doesn't function in regular society he can't handle making a brand and he just has to sit in a studio and paint mm-hmm. but he did make quite a brand I mean there's all those like branded yeah yeah, yeah but it, it's not in the same way that now like, a lot of yeah. media savvy artists like it, where, I mean, where street art has gone with someone like Shepard Ferry, where he's... Mm. Uh, in, I'm not talking about a brand in the abstract way, but in a more yeah. of a company way. Like yeah, yeah, having yeah, a company, having a thousand employees and distribution and lawyers and all that stuff. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> but my, my point is that often, if you approach reaching out to people in an academic way, it's very hard to do. And it often fails. So it, when when the academic, well, you reminded me. I also uh, wanted yeah, to cr- create this universal visual to, language. Yeah, and, and but don't you have? You, I mean, and he probably appealed to some desire, like like a universal desire in some yeah. way. Yeah, like I'm reading this book called Breakthrough Advertising, which is like one of those secret books people in business give you to like to unlock success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like one of those classics. It was written a while ago and been passed around a lot. And the book talks about tapping in to these, and we all know this stuff, right? But these like fundamental desires. But as artists, for some reason, we often reject this, the the crassness of advertising. But advertisers have figured out what fundamental desire, like wanting to be loved, and yeah, exactly, our base level emotions. Like, so there are only so many actually, uh, and they talk about this on a mass market level. So if you want to reach a mass market, there are really only like a few base level desires that you can tap into that are universal um, but you have to be successful you really have to leverage those desires and if you reject those desires then you're you're rejecting the market um, and it's but it's just really fascinating to read how you you know you get in there and it's really like if you look at art history or someone like Basquiat they are leveraging some of these ten, it, you could call them tensions or desires uh, you're really trying to like capture the emotion of an entire collective society and bottle that iconically in a work of art or whatever um, so that people can point and say that's me and it's not just one pe- person right it's like everyone being like I, I felt that or I now I understand why that mm-hmm. person feels that way and it kind of brings people together like you said in the show that you visited but the, the, the promise of the the internet is that it would have many more flavors for many smaller niches yeah, that's right. We've talked about that previously, the slicing up. And so there are very few of these artists that managed to like bring all the niches together. We could probably probably pinpoint one that's done it, but maybe not. Maybe it's not possible. Maybe there's never going to be well, another. Well, it, 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 I always reference music, but the, there was a time when everyone when everyone in rock and roll was like, okay, Led Zeppelin, that's it. And everybody went to a big stadium, and now people go to much smaller gigs. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. That's like oh. the, that's like local locavore market too for like restaurants, like making sure there's local ingredients. And here in Oslo, like local, everything's local, local, local. <laughs> but um, we're a little bit over time, and I feel yeah. like yeah, we've made a f- we can do, we can uh, discuss uh, gadget news in the next episode. <laughs> yeah, so you're gonna have to hold on because if you get your tech news from us, you first have to get through an hour <laughs> of <laughs> like two philosophical. Years late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, did you hear about dial-up? It's the new thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, we could just like it. We could just iterate all the things that Apple announced. Apple announced like a speaker that you can talk to. Like two years after Amazon and Google, yeah. and Apple announced uh, that AR is like something that they're really interested in, and they want other people to develop on top of. And Apple announced what else did they announce? New version of an iPad <laughs> that's <laughs> oh, got a 120 uh, we, hertz refresh rate. Should we do that now or next week? I'm just going to summary. It's like tune in next week to find out about oh, okay, how the okay. Apple Pencil is more responsive. And any product of theirs that you thought on this, I'm going to order that. Well, because uh, Kristen, for Chris, some reason, Kristen, my partner, of all things, she's like super, she's like, she's giving up on regular computers and she's, because her vision is failing, she's going blind slowly and she's, she's leaning into the iPad as like the solution to all of her problems. And she already she has can make one. the fonts bigger. Yeah, but not only that, because she wants physical interfaces. So, you know, like you and I might laugh, like, oh, keyboard and mouse is like so much more precise. Mm. She's like, I can't see. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I want to hold a pencil in my hand. Well, Apple has been, uh, it, they do a lot of accessibility features. So you, even yeah. for the visually impaired, they, yeah, it so can they, be audio guidance. And, yeah. yeah, so for her, actually, it's like... Um, yeah, these kinds of we often take for granted that these uh, like the, these paradigm shifts are, you know, we're often like, oh, it's just stupid marketing. But in some cases, it actually uh, appeals to a segment of the population. Yeah, that yeah. Was I mean, people it, it, people are so against capitalism. And then I was talking to my dentist, <laughs> and he he said that really the 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 whole leap in in oral well being has has come from business, not from the state. Mm-hmm. The well, idea that you have to brush your teeth. That came from business? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, brushing, that's a whole, that, there is a whole podcast there because there's a great story behind the marketing of toothpaste and how they managed to tie it to habit and feel sensation or feeling, um, mm-hmm. but that was separate from the actual product benefit. So they started to sell, toothpaste companies started to sell clean mouth feeling, not actually clean mouth, because when they advertised <laughs> clean mouth, it was patronizing to people and people felt like they were being lectured. But when they started selling clean mouth feeling and they made they added like frothiness to toothpaste and mint and all of these fe- the feeling of freshness, then it sold very well. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we should uh, get into this week's field recording. Yeah, it was a field recording by Linda Lowe, who is visiting Documenta and uh, all the other summer art festivals. And Documenta, and- though, like, just so people know, Documenta is like only comes around every five years. It's like. I think we've talked about the Olympics. I think of, of that genre of, of curator heavy art, that's the pinnacle. That's the pyramid. Yeah, it's the top of the top of the top. But it happens that this uh, document it also happens at the time of Venice, which is another you know big fair it's, only it's every like two the, years. When, when all the planets align. Yeah, all the planets have aligned. And also Munster, which is like the sculpture thing. And then Basel, which is this big art fair. It's all happening this week. <laughs> so it's like the stars have all aligned. And what's, what happens in this recording? Do we hear money, cash registers? <laughs> yeah. Do we hear? No, I think, um, let me pull up the email, but she's somewhere in Germany and there's church mm. bells and there's cafes. It's, it's like a, but she's in Castle where Documenta happens? Or is yeah, she? Yeah, it's like the pinnacle of German life. I'm going to try and go to Documenta next week. I've never been, uh, full disclosure. I might not be, I might, I might have something to talk about next week if I go. So the email's funny. Hi, Raphael and Jeremy. I'm an Australian traveling in Europe for the big 10-year event when Venice, Documenta, Munster all coincide. Hmm. I recorded this when staying overnight in Innsbruck, Austria. 
The bells just kept going and going while we were eating in the beer garden, itself a very Austrian thing. The thing Australia has in common with Austria is that some Americans get us mixed up. Get, yeah. uh, get and then, uh, Austrians, uh, oh, I get it, like New Zealand and Australia yeah. gets confused, like Austrian and German. Well, just the two words, uh, yeah, Australia, Austria. Oh, I didn't read it that way, yeah, but that makes yeah. more sense. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the audio quality is is not the best because it was recorded on her S4 and she said she's very tempted to get the S8, so... Uh, go for it. You have my yeah, improve. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I remember. It sounds like a bit bit crushed. Like it's like a, yeah. But let's maybe this a is a cool choice. reference to the, the the topic this week of sampling and uh, sampling <laughs> quality changes the world. Oh yeah, she's sampling the church bells. Whoa. Yeah. Should we make, pay copyright to the church? <laughs> no, the church has already done quite well over his historically. <laughs> No, they have a lot of maintenance fees now, of keeping up their monuments. Well, they should have kept some of that money that they stole from people for hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, people, let's listen to the church bells from Innsbruck. Thank you, Linda Lowe. Yeah, thank you so much. Just keep sending in your field recordings. Thanks for listening.